watching Global Investor and Business Day TV. I'm Stephen Gunyan. On the show this week, Nick Kunzer from Bridge Stockbrokers takes us through all the news driving global markets. Then in our fund segment, Liang Du states the investment case for Prescient's China Balanced Fund. All that coming your way shortly. First, though, a look at your headlines. Well, after falling short since its 2013 IPO, Twitter says it may turn its first profits ever in the fourth quarter. The company has been on a rigorous cost-cutting ex- uh, exercise. It's also trying to attract revenue beyond advertising. Wall Street climbed higher on Friday after a surge in the tech sector and a rally in Amazon, helping push the Nasdaq to its best day in nearly a year. Analysts expect the momentum to continue as the market awaits further details of President Trump's anticipated tax plan. And U.S. GDP grew by 3% in the third quarter, despite recent hurricanes threatening to destabilize the economy. Analysts say the strong reading supports the case for a rate hike come December. Here's more. U.S. GDP grew at a 3% annual rate in the third quarter, despite two back-to-back hurricanes. That after a similar expansion in the quarter before. Bank rates, Mark Hamrick. Well, what was nice to see was uh, both uh, positive contributions coming from the consumer spending money, as well as a business investment. And uh, you need to have both of those hitting on uh, cylinders to, to have a good looking GDP reading like this. Uh, there were a couple of negatives, uh, investment or spending on structures such as basically uh, commercial and residential uh, real estate. Um, that's a negative here and also government spending a negative. Uh, But uh, it looks like the outlook for at least the U.S. housing market is uh, perhaps firm in the near term at best. The Commerce Department said it couldn't estimate the impact of Hurricane Harvey and Irma just yet, but preliminary numbers showed about $130 billion in damages. Post-hurricane jobs, retail sales and industrial production numbers, though, show the U.S. economy is still going strong. And they say the positive first read of the third quarter GDP only affirms that the Federal Reserve will hike interest rates in December. Well, for the market wrap, joined by Nick Kunze from Bridge Stockbrokers. Um, well, Nick, Nick, let's start with those third quarter GDP numbers because they come ahead of the Fed's meeting this mm. week. And there is growing anticipation of a, an interest rate hike uh, in December. Yeah, I mean, an absolute blast, even though a good evening. And it, it was um, an absolute cracker. I mean, what else can you say? And that was supposed to be in the middle of the hurricanes. People were talking about so the whisper numbers ratcheting it down, maybe 2.5%, but three solid 3% growth with those hurricanes. Um, and really not much to add to it, just a really good set. So do you think it does um, pave the way for an interest rates hike? Do you think the Fed will be comfortable with that? I think they have to. I think they do. I mean, it, it, completely different to what the ECB is doing. You, I mean, you look at, at what the Fed have to do now. I mean, already the marketplace is pricing in 2.44, 2 2.5% uh, on that 10-year already. So the market's already starting to price it in. Um, and I think, you know, after nine and a half years of rates pretty much near zero, um, I think it's got to be on the cards. It's got to be. Um, they're not going to do it this time around, though, apparently with there's no press conference afterwards. But I think December is a, is a, is a mere certainty. So does it have to be a press conference afterwards if they're going to hike the rate? <laughs> I don't think it has to, but uh, given the rhetoric now, what's happening with uh, Janet Yellen, possibly the last time she, she sits with a new Fed uh, chairperson being announced, I think it would be prudent not to. Um, inflation, though, still stubbornly low. and. It's just not getting to that 2% um, barricade that they wanted to get to. Will they, will they hike regardless of inflation being so low? I think, I think where they're, they're lacking 
a certain level of inflation is not your typical areas. So, for example, apparently things like your medical aid uh, fees, stuff like that, inflation is up like 200% in that sphere over 10 years. And there's been a strong argument for people saying, well, what about asset price inflation? I mean, do we want to prick this a really reasonably expensive asset bubble? So you could argue that there's inflation in asset prices as well. So I think if, you really want, if they really want an excuse and look for it, they could find it. You mentioned the ECB, and they were su- surprisingly dovish last week, mm. or Mario Draghi was surprisingly dovish. So they are starting to taper back their, their, their purchases of assets, um, but nowhere near cutting it off altogether. Uh, and a strange one, Stephen. If you look at, if you look at uh, the, what he said afterwards in the press conference, uh, uh, surprisingly dovish. Um, and yet, most asset managers are telling you the place to be, where to put your money is in Europe, it's growing, that's where inflation is mm-hmm. going to be. Um, maybe America's a bit expensive. We're seeing um, you know, CPI numbers and PPI numbers across the board in, in, in the Eurozone looking a lot better. Uh, Manufacturing is doing better. I mean, I could go on and on and on and on. Yet, uh, the ECB coming out and saying they're going to continue to possibly well into 2018. Don't expect a, an interest rate rise until after 2018. So, uh, very much of a dislocation between what the ECB are busy telling the marketplace and the old uh, habit of, of forward guidance and, where the, and then where the market is right now. So, you could actually see the, I mean, the euro is weak in three cents already since, since Draghi came out. And I guess most traders are now wondering like, where to from here. You know, how can they be so dovish? It was quite surprising. Is it because Germany is the main driver of the growth we're seeing in Europe at the moment and that it's not evenly spread, particularly around the peri- peripheral countries? I think possibly, and I think maybe some of the arguments in the case that, that the euro has been quite strong recently, and this is a nice excuse for them to weaken it, and that would tie into the theory of Germany being the, the main exporter out of the area, out of the eurozone. But um, it, it, it's still on the on the scheme of things. It, it was it, you got to think with interest rates in the eurozone are sitting at negative 0.4 percent. Mm-hmm. How does that equate to an environment where? The rest of the world are telling you that the eurozone is possibly going to be leading growth with emerging markets going forward into global growth. It doesn't quite add up. Okay, and BOE also sitting this week. And in the last meeting, there was a mix of hawks and doves mm. at, the, at, the, at the meeting. Uh, it looks like this time, though, the market is expecting uh, Mark Carney to raise interest rates because we do have inflation that, that, that's accelerating. They've got high unemployment levels, and they also um, have a pound this week at the moment. Yeah, and I think that, that would certainly be one of the, the, the first sort of major central banks to start the, the, the hiking process. We've already seen it with Canada, uh, BOE. Really, it's a really pencil, and they're going to be raising rates. Um, but it's, it, it's not not a given, and we've seen with these central banks recently, and and and. Uh, Someone points out if you if you um, Google Carney, uh, what he, what he's like about uh, the girlfriend that never delivers. This is suppose he's got. It, who knows what he's going to do? But but right now it's it, it, it's a 50-50 split. The market's pricing a, a rise. Okay, let's look at some company news. Um, Twitter uh, mm-hmm. it was in the headlines could turn its first profits ever in the fourth quarter. They've been cutting expenses. They're looking for new revenue sources, uh, including live streaming. So I think they've been live streaming events, yeah. sports events, news uh, broadcasts and the likes. Um, you're not convinced though. I mean, let's, let's hope they deliver a profit. 53, t- uh, 53 P on the stock, yet to make a profit. Stock was up, balanced, lasted, balanced about 15% in the last week on the back of this. You, you better hope they make a profit because <laughs> the market's pricing into perfection. Um, I personally do not think that it's, it's, I think it's too expensive and I think it's too much of a fickle business. Um, but let's see, the market, we're a typical marketplace, we're now, let's see if they're, they're buying the rumour, selling the news, so let's see. Mm. Hey, 
do, do you think they have a business case that justifies the, the rating that they have at the moment, the 53 PE? And where else, apart from advertising and live streaming, could they make revenue? Well, I guess that there's an argument to be had for, the, for what data they possess. They've got real-time data of, I think, 350 million subscribers mm -hmm. uh, that, that's, that, are, that are users of Twitter. So in this, da in this, this age of data capturing and, yeah, and data how, being... How do you monetize that? How do you monetize that? So, th so you I've heard that argument too. The, the problem is the margins are very thin. The, the point of entry is, a cost is pretty much zero cost. Um, Facebook, we're going to buy them, they've already turned it down, and they're going to launch a similar thing. Google have launched a similar product with, with uh, video streaming as well. So you're, you're, you're surrounded by a lot of competitors with a lot of deep pockets who are making money, and you're not making money. So I think, I think that the jury's out whether they'll still be around, but um, I certainly wouldn't rush into them right now. Uh, let's look at some of the other tech shares because they all rallied last week. Yeah. We had numbers coming out of Microsoft, out of Amazon and Alphabet. Um, Microsoft, um, you could argue, isn't expensive or isn't as expensive, um, but they really are making gains from cloud computing, aren't they? Very much so. They, they're challenging directly in that space with, with Amazon Web Services. They're funny enough, they're all, if you look at the results that happened on on the on the Super Thursday, they're calling it, where those <laughs> blowout numbers, um, Amazon, Google, um, and Microsoft, the majority, the highest margins, the most income revenue stream was done on the back of, of hosting service and web services. Um, and, and they're delivering. They are delivering. They're all, but uh, funny enough, they're all competing in exactly the same space. But uh, they're not expensive. Now they compare that to a Twitter, they're trading on a, on a Ford P of like 21s and 22s. So it's a, that, that's Microsoft. So a, a far better looking company, and, and you've you got to think much more uh, room for, for growth. Mm. Yeah. A any favorites amongst those? Well, you got to say Amazon's might have the lead with um, with with what they're doing in their space. Um, they've yet to. I mean, they're starting to generate a decent profit now. Mm -hmm. But a, a typical the, the problem with Amazon, uh, and I think it's a similar with the Teslas, and you buying into the, the sort of the, the Bezos dream. You know, if you if you had listened to what he said a couple of years ago, you probably wouldn't have rushed into it. But all of a sudden now he's starting to deliver. The only problem thing I've got again, Stephen, is the valuations of some of these things. Amazon's on a Ford P of 150 times earnings. Yes, they're, they're delivering you know, quarter on quarter growth of 40 percent, which is remarkable. Mm -hmm. But um, how long that can continue for? I mean, the world is only so big. But for now, you've got to say Amazon might have the lead in that space. Okay, um, and then perhaps moving over to uh, banks, mm -hmm. and we had numbers coming out of Deutsche Bank and also Barclays um, last week, and I think both disappointed the markets. Yeah. Deutsche Bank, 10% fall in third quarter revenue, uh, and it just seems to be a weak market all round for Deutsche. I think if you had to look at the environment these banks are operating in, and certainly likes of Deutsche, I've got a massive trading environment, um, the, the, the typical, the forex, the, the commodities, the bond, and their trading space. Volatility, as we know, it's no secret. People talk about our dinner tables now. You know, volatility is sitting under 10% mm -hmm. for the year. It's, it's, they can't make money. It's that, that is their bread and butter business. And trading yeah. revenues on the, on the NYSC are down 30-odd percent year on year. So they're going to battle to make an environment. And the same goes for Barclays. Their, their trading environment is going to take a knock. Compared to the U.S. banks? Uh, I think the U.S. banks are, are better, are, are much better capitalized. I think Barclays, jury's still on that one. Deutsche also, their derivative book is still bleeding. They're, they're much better capitalized after their, after their recent capital mm -hmm. raising, um, but their, t their tier ones and tier two ratios are still a little scary for me. And I suppose the U.S. banks are benefiting from rising interest rates rather than static interest rates. Very much so. 
Okay, let's leave it there for a moment. We're going to a short break. When we come back, we take a look at Prescient's China Balanced Fund. That's with fund manager Liang Du. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. You're watching Global Investor. Still with me in studio, Nick Kunze from Bridge Stockbrokers. We're also joined on the line from China by Prescient's fund manager Liang Du to look at their China Balanced Fund. Uh, Liang, a very good evening. Thanks for joining us. So, if you buy the China Balanced Fund, what are you getting in there? Seems to have lost Liang for a moment. Um, so, I'll chat to Nick in the meantime. Mm. And um, one thing that we observed that you're not getting when you buy the China Balanced Fund is a share like 10 cents. So, exactly. when you're thinking about investing in China, I think Alibaba and 10 cents are the two big companies that people look at. Does it put you off that they're not included in a fund like this? No, I don't think so at all, Stephen. I think, um, and in fact, it's quite refreshing to actually to, to pick up a, a, a fact sheet and not see 10 cents <laughs> in Alibaba in it. Um, to, to people forget when they when they want exposure to China that there's two distinct sides of it. There's there's mainland and then there's obviously Hong Kong, um, and and funny enough, investors put two very different valuations on each one. Mm -hmm. Whereas the one is allowed to be more foreign held, um, and you get the A shares and the B shares. The other side is is not so susceptible to foreign investment. So it's uh, it's worth remembering, especially for for listeners or viewers out there now, that that there's two very size of China you play. And I suppose um, most Western investors would be more comfortable buying the Hong Kong shares just given the history, whereas there's mm. a lot more opaqueness around the, chi the mainland China markets. There's a, there's a lot more transparency on the island, definitely. And, um, and in fact, uh, up until before the, the, the handover um, in the late 90s, they they had a reputation for being the law was much more stringent, uh, the accounting standards were much higher. Whereas, whereas when you're buying in places like Shanghai, the even though they've come on leaps and bounds, you are still the the, the transparency that we speak about is is not always there. So, would you be comfortable with, with a fund like this? Because it looks like the the, re the returns are quite decent, and the benchmark is uh, Chinese inflation, mm. which is at the moment um, around four or five percent. Yeah. I think we were chatting off yeah. there. Um, so, this aims to beat that, and it looks like it has done quite comfortably. Yeah, and, and I think I think investors need to remember as well that the the Hong Kong dollar is, is pegged to the U.S. dollar, so you are you're effectively buying stocks, so to speak, in dollars that, that, that until that peg one day maybe goes away. But for now, it's linked directly to the dollar. But I think you would be comfortable. Look, it, it also it, it must be noted that this year, and specifically this year, uh, volatility in Chinese shares has been pretty much non-existent. And when you invested in China in the past. That usually came with a sort of a your health warning. Be careful; these things mm -hmm. are volatile. But uh, again, summing up what we're seeing around the rest of the world, not only has been low volatility um, in places like the U.S. and Europe, China's <laughs> getting the spillover as well. Okay. Well, I think I think we have Liang back on the, on the line now. Liang, very good evening. Thanks for joining us. So, and um, we were just chatting about the China Balanced Fund, uh, and Nick is commenting on a lack of volatility this year. Are investors becoming more comfortable with mainland China shares? Definitely. I think um, the mainland China shares have started to mature. So the entire market has started to change. So when we started the fund four and a half years ago, over 80% of the volume is driven by retail investors. Um, if you look at the market today, for example, um, there's far more institutional investors in place. Um, so that sense has dropped to about 65%. Now, what you've seen is really pension funds starting to join the market, a more professionalized market where there's a lot more professional management. Um, and of course, uh, you know, the rumors of that's called the national team or basically the social security 
in China, a massive government pension fund that is slowly accumulating equities from a position where they previously had none. Uh, is the market becoming more transparent? Because that was one of the criticisms in the past, that it wasn't transparent enough for, for global investors and particularly for institutional uh, international investors to invest in those shares. Um, from our perspective, certainly, um, we've seen a lot of improvement. Of course, there's nothing's ever perfect. Um, there's a long road to go still, but especially in the last 12 to 18 months, We've seen a massive clampdown on, on fake numbers, on accountancy fraud, on financial fraud, on white-collar crime in China. Um, that, of course, comes together with the clampdown on corruption in China. And the combination means that just the market's just becoming a lot more institutionalized. Um, I think certainly the Chinese government realized that functional capital market is crucial to the development of China going forward. Okay. So, so take us through, um, we were discussing uh, while we were trying to get you on the line, um, a couple of the shares that aren't in your fund, and those are Tencent and Alibaba, and of course those are shares that are top of mind with most investors um, globally. So what sort of shares do you include, what do you look for in shares that are going to be included in your balanced fund? Ah, very simply, we invest in the China-A share market. Um, so we exclude things like Hong Kong shares as well as US ADRs, um, simply because they're freely available to everyone. Um, so for that, we think there's a lot of managers out there in the world who can buy these shares. Um, as we all well know, South African market itself, I think that's now over 20% of our market index. Um, so everyone's invested in those. And I think when we started the fund, we kind of asked ourselves, well, what is it that really helps people get high real returns? And for us, really, we focus on two things. One is, of course, um, the market beat itself. Investing in the right markets at the right time gives you good return but also, just as importantly, the ability to deliver alpha. And the, and the ability to deliver alpha is essentially outperforming the market. And there, basically, we had to question ourselves, what is it that makes us good, or what is it that we do very, very well that continuously allows us to beat the market and not other people? Um, and what we find is that in a market such as China, because of a lack of professional investors in a market such as China, the opportunities there are far greater. Um, so if you do things consistently, if you remove emotion from the investing, and you really, really uh, look at the numbers, diversify your portfolio, you're able to outperform the market very, very well. And through a combination of the two, that's how we reach our very high real returns. Mm. I mean, I see your biggest sexual rating is for financials, and in fact, your top holding is uh, is a company that some South Africans might recognise. It's Ping An Insurance, and of course, Discovery has a joint venture with Ping An in, in China. Are you seeing decent returns, strong growth coming through in the financials and particularly in the insurance markets in China? Um, I think crucially for us, one of the most important things we do is try not to. Um, so our entire process and philosophy is based on taking advantage of other investors' mistakes. But what we don't do is pick sectors. Um, so by and large, our, our portfolio is mostly sector neutral. Right? So that come across very, very surprising because we've been able to generate alpha of, let's say, um, around 5% per annum consistently. So we're, out, we're beating the market by 5% per annum consistently without taking massive sector bets. I think that's what we're all about. So when you see a lot of ping out, a lot of financials in, the, uh, in our portfolio, it's simply a reflection of the fact that the benchmark itself has a lot of financial stocks. Now, within the financial stocks, what we're looking for is essentially cheap companies, um, companies that retail investors struggle to buy or retail investors struggle to buy the story of, yet the numbers are very, very strong, as well as quality financial companies. So we can focus on these three things and buy these types of financial companies in a diversified manner. 
I mean, if retail investors struggle to buy them, um, uh, are there any liquidity uh, constraints um, for, for yourself when you're trading in and out of those shares? Uh, absolutely not. Um, I think so one of the things, when I say retail investors struggle to buy them, um, I think what people don't know about Chinese retail investors, for example, that their typical holding period is about 10 track days, between 5 to 10 track days. Um, so big financial companies tend to be boring in their minds. Uh, so retail investors were like, well, why would I buy this? Because there's just no action in them. Uh, so they tend to be ignored. Uh, so we'd like to buy things that are ignored by you know, the masses, uh, whereas in China, I think the crucial thing is the masses are the big participants in the market, and you try to outsmart them. And you try to do things and try to figure out things that what are the mistakes that they make, and we try to take advantage of that. In terms of liquidity itself, China has over 1,500 shares more liquid than our top 40 in South Africa. Um, so in terms of liquidity themselves, it is completely liquid market. Um, the most illiquid position in our entire portfolio takes us 17 minutes to liquidate in China. Mm. Your thoughts on all of this, Nick, is this something <coughs> that would appeal to you as an investor? No, definitely. Rather than a, a mom-and-pop trader. <laughs> no, definitely. And, and I was just laughing to myself because, I mean, not many, as uh, Liang was saying, not many people in South Africa realize they, they're actually very exposed to China, well, to, to Hong Kong anyway. But um, I think I think it's uh, it's now that I'm certainly seeing with with uh, um, you know the Chinese regulators have shown an interest in opening up these capital markets to to the investors as Liang was saying and uh, I think as more and more as as the market matures um, I think this is going to be become more and more of a story definitely. Okay. I mean, Liang, you do say on the facts fund sheet that you have an active asset allocation overlay on the fund. Um, but, I mean, it, it is mostly in equities, although you, you do have some bond and money market exposure. Uh, that's absolutely correct. Um, I think for us, the crucial thing is that, you know, the market itself does great. Um, over the very, very long term, for example, South African market, S&P 500, et cetera, et cetera, it's one of the strongest delivers of real return, right? However, you don't always want to be in the market. So, for example, if you invest in the U.S. in the year 2000 or 2007, it took you a decade or two decades before you made your money back. And in China, it's exactly that type of market where the market goes through massive cycles of euphoria and depression. And so what we try to do essentially is very, very simple. Um, on a consistent manner, we try to buy the market when it's cheap, when sentiment is positive, and policies are supporting of the market, right? So government policy is supportive of the market. At that period of time, will be very high in equity. And vice versa, we'll avoid the market when the market's expensive, when sentiment's negative, and government are forced to have policies that are negative towards the market. Mm. Now, South African investors buying into your, your China balance fund, they're investing, um, well, they're, they're, they're using the rands and they're, they're investing in yuan, aren't they? Yes, they are. Um, so I think previously, I, I mean, I jumped into the conversation a little bit late, but from what I've heard, the yuan is kind of a semi-managed currency, you could call it that, a semi-floating currency. Um, it's, it's partially tied to the US dollar. It's not quite there. It's actually tied to, a, it's more tied to a basket, trade-weighted basket. But it's quite a stable currency. Um, so that's what you're seeing. I think China is a natural, they have a $400 billion trade surplus annually. So absent any capital outflow or capital outflow fear, it has a natural appreciation tendency. Over the very, very long term, you're seeing time inflation targets of 2 to 3%, very similar to U.S. inflation targets of 2%. So over the long term, we expect the Chinese CNY to be a currency that will be stronger than the RAND, um, certainly uh, by the inflation differential. Okay, so you're not necessarily taking on undue currency risk if you do invest in this? 
Um, no, so we are CNY funds. So certainly, um, it's, it's you're buying one more currency. And I think it's a nice currency to have because what you tend to find is both the Chinese currency and the Chinese asset that should be very low correlated to anything a typical South African investor have access to. Um, so, you know, although China itself can sometimes be volatile, by including China in your portfolio, it inevitably reduces the risk of the entire portfolio as a whole. And I think that's what makes it so attractive to us, is that not only do you get potentially a higher return over the long term, it's certainly the opportunity of higher return over the long term, as we've shown in our fund, um, but also the fact that because it's so low correlated to anything South Africans have access to, it can potentially reduce your portfolio risk on the portfolio level. Okay. And um, for, I mean, for the South African investor, um, what sort of percentage would you be putting into something like the China Balanced Fund, Liang? Um, so I think for us, the key is always to have a well-diversified portfolio. I think for anyone knows, um, when you're too concentrated, things can go wrong. So markets such as China, I think the natural percentage for South African investors is probably between 5 to 10%. And I think that'll be enough to get you a ticker to your return over the long term. And at the same time, also bring some of that diversification benefit I was talking about earlier. Okay. Um, and Nick, you get the last word. Would you be putting a bit of China in your investment portfolio if you didn't want to inc include something like Tencent or Nasperis? Very much so. I think it's uh, the space to watch in the next 10 years, without a doubt. Okay, we have to leave it there. Thanks uh, very much to both of our guests tonight. That's Nick Kunza and Liang Du for their insights. Many thanks to you for watching. Same time next week. Goodbye.